Today is July 16th, 2023, and this is episode number 130, 130 of the podcast. Uh, wow, pretty cool. Guys, we're going to continue today, this week, our little uh, journey through Eric Vogelin's masterpiece, The New Science of Politics, a book published in 1952. If this is your first time listening, I just found the podcast. Uh, I want to say this is the, the kind of the fourth. We're kind of working through this book that I read a couple times at the beginning of the year. I think that this work of Vogelin's provides some perspective and maybe even some hope on a pathway out of uh, the nightmare that is our current society. Um, but I want to talk a little bit today. And if this is your first time, make sure to go to thecurrency.show. You can catch all the episodes there. Uh, you can get caught up. I will also throw some information in the show notes. So just go to the currency.show forward slash episode 130, and you can get links to the other, other episodes. You can find uh, how to contact me. You can even donate to the show. Uh, I got my first little bits of Bitcoin, Satoshis. Somebody uh, gave me nine Satoshis the other day. So how that works is if you are using a podcast 2.0 compliant app to listen to the show, something like, say, Fountain app or some of these other ones, which you can find um, at podcastindex.org, then you can give uh, little bits of Bitcoin or you can give me a whole Bitcoin if you want. I don't even know what they're worth right now. I want to say like 3,300 or 3,400 Satoshis equals like $1, maybe. <laughs> so I got nine the other day from someone. Very grateful for that. Thank you, my friend. Uh, pretty cool to have that. Anyway, a little sidetrack there, but you can donate to the show. Yeah, I am not ready to quit my day job yet. In fact, I never will. And for those of you wondering, what is your day job, Mike? Uh, I'm a strategist. I do consulting for private businesses and have been expanding out into other types of institutions. Essentially, I work with any organization, institution, business that is conservatively oriented. I'm committed to the health and well-being and goodness of our society. And uh, I do strategy as a marketing work, revenue generation, et cetera, for those kinds of organizations. And uh, so that's what I do for a day job. And I will not quit. I love my work, but it's a lot of fun to do this podcast. It's a great opportunity to get ideas out there. I keep threatening to have guests on. That is in the works, by the way, so have patience. I want to just get through this kind of um, exploration of Vogelin's new science of politics once we get on the other side of that. I've got some guests lined up, should be some interesting conversations. Anyway, all that to say, let's jump in. Today we are talking about uh, soteriological truth, the existential truth of the soteriological society. Sounds pretty complex. Uh, what we're going to do today is we're going to talk about ancient Rome as kind of the framework to understand this aspect. Now, as a quick refresher, we've been talking about representative government, and you're going to roll your eyes if you've been listening, because I keep hammering this home, but representative government is not necessarily a government that represents the people, the will of the people, as we tend to f kind of conceptualize it here in the U.S. 
uh, Vogelin, when he's talking about representative government, is a government that represents the truth of the of 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 the cosmos, the metaphysical truth of the universe, etc. And you get three kinds of existential truth, three ways that you can um, uh, kind of un- orient a society. The first is cosmological, meaning the society is oriented around the, the greater truth of the cosmos. There's some great God on a throne in this society. These tend to be these ancient, um, ancient empires and ancient societies. You know, God gives us victory in war. Obviously, He's on our side, and we're going to conquer the rest of the nations. We're going to bring the earth uh, into order with the reality of our God. Yeah, obviously, we're victorious. That means our God is powerful and supreme, and so we orient our society around the the the, the reality of this God. We're representing the truth of this cosmological God on earth, that we're a microcosm. The second way uh, of representing existential truth is anthropological, meaning that, yes, there is this cosmic truth, but also man is a representation of truth. The man, a man has a soul, and that soul, when properly ordered, is good. The, 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 and so you have like this, the society of people, but really the society of people is a larger manifestation of the individuals that make the society up. So you orient around the truth of the, of the human being, of the soul. And we talked, we unpacked that in the last episode, this idea that the discovery of the soul, the psyche and the human being through the Greek, the classic Greek philosophers, uh, the psyche is where, the soul is where the transcendent uh, touches man, where man touches the transcendent. And what's interesting about this idea, especially with the Greek philosophers, we didn't get into it too deeply, but it matters for today when we talk about the soteriological, is that the philosophers of, of classical uh, Greece and um, these kind of deeper thinkers, they, they didn't presume that you could actually interact with God. You're always chasing after your, your hunger for this, this truth, and you're trying to discover, you're trying to... You were trying to connect. It was through the soul that you were on this quest to connect with God uh, or, or the truth. Um, and you're on this never-ending quest. You don't actually ever truly discover him. You never really connect with him. Uh, and so then you have this third exis- way of representing uh, truth, existential truth, and that is soteriological. And soteriology has to do with the concept of salvation. How does man find salvation? And so you have societies oriented around um, salvation, around around intimacy with God. Now, we tend to think of soteriological in terms of Christianity, but this could be for any religion. It's not relate, It's not relegated solely to Christianity. Although if you get into any type of Christian doctrine or theology, you, you may hear uh, soteriology or the soteriological you know, doctrine of, we're talking about salvation. How can man be saved? And, and all the religions are trying to figure this out throughout mankind's history. They're trying to figure out how can mankind be saved? Uh, Buddhism, uh, you know, um, Islam, Judaism—they're all after this soteriology, this 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 study uh, of salvation. How does man become saved? Now, obviously, this becomes quite uh, explicit in Christianity. Anyone that's ever had exposure to Christianity knows it's it's uh, the work of Christ is a is a saving work. It, it provides salvation for mankind, the individuals. 
Uh, if you are Unitarian, you believe that that salvation is for everyone. If you're, if you, which is not um, Orthodox Christianity, Orthodox Christianity teaches that each individual has to come to terms with God and uh, can only approach God through Christ. Okay, so we have this concept now of societies oriented around salvation, which is which is interesting. So in in I mentioned that we're going to talk about ancient Rome. You know, the Greeks had this idea that this the, of a friendship of um, of this connection between people, and that that friendship could only be re- realized through equals. Meaning, if the depth of my kind of my my deepest spiritual aspects of myself, you know, for lack of technical terms here. Like you think about yourself, you think of your deepest, most spiritual aspects of yourself. It sounds new agey. Just bear with me here. I'm just, it's a lack of, it's a lack of, um, of vocabulary. There is a vocabulary for this, uh, a noetic, the, the no, the news, the nows. I don't know how you pronounce it, but that it gets kind of technical. So you just think about the, your deepest spiritual part of yourself, your most inner person to the degree that my most inner person, my most spiritual kind of inner aspect of me is of a similar depth and focus as you, we can have an intimate relationship. We can have connection. And that you really can't have connection between people that have disparate, different levels of spiritual depth of spiritual awareness, of spiritual uh, development, let's say, spiritual maturity. And so what the Greeks said was, well, we don't, you know, if you don't have similar spiritual development and depth and and maturation, maturity, you, you can't really have a friendship. And so you can see this on a very common level where you have this, you know, philosopher who spends his whole life chasing after the truth. And he's got this highly developed kind of spiritual uh, aspect, you know, depth, maturity, and so on. And then you get um, some, you know, kind of street urchin, uh, this person who really hasn't devoted themselves to that. They're a bit of a a criminal, a pickpocket, a thief, a 'er ne'er-do-well. They're not going to have a true friendship. They can't connect on a deeper level unless they both share a similar type of spiritual development and uh, and being. And so because of that, and I mentioned earlier that this idea of the anthropological society, that, that, that you're, you're in your soul always chasing after God, but never really connecting with him. Well, this is because God's spiritual depth is so pure and perfect and whole and full and good. And mankind's spiritual depth, even at its best, can't compare to God. There's no way for mankind's greatest aspects. Uh, you find a man or woman who is so perfect and so pure in their spiritual development, it can't even compare to how pure and beautiful and complex and broad and deep, et cetera, as God's spiritual development. Not that God develops, um, but but you understand what I'm trying to say. I hope I hope you do. Uh, so So then you have this everlasting gulf between man and God, this inability for them to have friendship, to have deep communion, to have connection. And so these societies are after this connection with God. So they start out more, we want to represent our God 
through warfare and civilization and taking over territory and enforcing other societies and other cultures to, to bend the knee before our God and to be, become submitted to our power, which is a representation of our God's power on earth. And then you see this, this shift to, well, hold on a second. We can't have this cosmological truth happening at the expense of the person. We can't just be putting people to the sword to manifest the reality of God. So how do, how do people find God? How do they get aligned with God? How does the soul come into a deeper way of being and bring the human being into order with goodness and virtue and the characteristics that that society holds up as, as being good? And then how do you have a society of people like that, where their souls are oriented along the truth? And so you still have this kind of cosmological truth happening in a society, but you have societies now orienting around good people. You know, we want good people and we want to build our society based on these good people. And goodness comes from searching after God. But the, but the problem is you cannot connect with God because you don't have the, the capacity, the capability to have the level of spiritual development, the, the, the noetic capacity to really be intimate with God, to have friendship with God. You might, you might get a glimpse of God. You might somehow interact with him on some level. You might have an understanding, albeit limited, of him. You might have a conception, even build some type of theology or doctrine around him, but you cannot be an intimate friend of God. Now, those of you that are listening that are Christians or that you had exposure to the Christian faith, you're, you, you know where this is going because Jesus, being God in the flesh, says, I no longer call you servants, or I call you friends. This is God becoming friends with mankind, not mankind as a whole. Uh, there's a lot of enmity. There's a lot of people that hate Jesus, a lot of people that hate God. They still do. But Christ opens up a way. He makes a way for mankind to have friendship with God. This is revolutionary. This is world cosmos changing. And so you have these societies moving and developing towards this anthropological manifestation, representation of truth. And, and this inability to, to be friends with God so they can only orient and, and, and represent um, the reality of the cosmos through the, the orientation and the order of the individuals and, and thus the society larger to a certain degree. But you can only get so far. And then Christianity comes along and says, no, you can be friends with God. This happens through the work of Christ, his His becoming flesh, God becoming flesh, living a perfect life, dying for the sins of mankind, being crucified, killed, and then overcoming sin and death by raising from the dead in three days, rising from the dead, from death, and and then ascending into heaven, sitting on the throne, interceding, uh, being a go-between, purifying the believer, giving them the right to stand before God on his throne, to have friendship with God, to be brothers to be brothers with the Lord. Okay, so you have this concept and you have all three of these truths, the cosmological, the anthropological, and the soteriological truth as ways that societies can represent truth through their organization, through their government. And you've got this idea of friendship, this bond based on a quality of, 
of the nose, the nous, uh, this deep spiritual aspect. And then you've got this problem of the inequals. You know, God and man, they're inequals, so they can't connect. And then Christianity comes along, Christ makes a way, and now man can become friends with God. And what you find in ancient Rome is the convergence of all three existential truths. Rome is founded as a society, a city, a society, an empire that manifests a cosmological truth of their gods. They have a pantheon of gods. They're, they're a pantheistic society. And then you also had this uh, uh, anthropological reality of Rome, the civic behavior of the individuals, these virtues that the individuals orient around, very much similar, not exactly the same, but similar to the Greeks. And uh, so, so you have this cosmological and anthropological, and then along comes Christianity, and, and the whole world gets turned upside down. So Christianity creates this ideal state of man. The anthropological model is man trying to become ideal, but he can't necessarily get there. Christianity creates this ideal state of man. Now we know what an ideal man or woman looks like. This is someone who is completely submitted to God and friends with God through the work of Jesus Christ. Now, what's interesting when you look at the history of ideas and how uh, political theorists through the ages, especially the modern age, say from the 1800s onwards, uh, tried to work around this, this idea that Christianity is like the ultimate expression of what a human being can look like. And you have these people like Marx and, and uh, is it, I don't know how you say, is it Nietzsche? Nietzsche? I hear people say it different ways. Um, but you, you have Nietzsche, Marx, you have um, Condorcet, Condorcet, you've got Comte, these different thinkers, philosophers that, that don't like the idea, they're rejecting Christianity. They're like, look, I want nothing to do with Christ as the ultimate. I, I, these Christians are pathetic. I mean, Nietzsche was just horrible uh, in, in, his, in his kind of estimation of Christianity, clearly a very <laughs> wounded and damaged individual. But, but when, they, when they try to ignore Christianity as like the ultimate representation, the ultimate kind of... Um, uh, manifestation of truth in, in, in humanity and human society, you end up with these different kinds of like, you know, supermen, like Nietzsche had the Ubermensch, the, the Superman, this kind of like, what does the ultimate man look like? And so for, for Nietzsche, it was this, this brutal, bloodthirsty, power hungry, willing to do anything, uh, kind of Dionysiac, you know, willing to just sacrifice anyone and anything for the ultimate manifestation of the Superman. Uh, for Marx, you get this very materialistic Superman. It's it's through the giant, uh, you know, collective estate. It's all materialism, the whole dialectical materialism. You know, it's it's uh, leveraging science and and the evolution of society from capitalism to to to. to to uh, international global communism, which is redundant, and um, and the power of the state, and uh, the organization of society around a material society around you know creating this utopia. Uh, you know, Comte he was big on um, positivism, like through science and technology we can create utopia. It's all these 
all these efforts are to create like this this perfect man and this perfect heaven on earth, and and they're always you know ugly and 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 anti-human. They're very anti-human. So the anti-Christian kind of manifestation of of the ideal man is always nihilistic. It's always empty. It's death. It's the void. Um, anyway, it's just kind of a side comment. All right. So what we have in Rome is an interesting kind of uh, an interesting kind of setting because as moderns and postmoderns were so used to the idea of the separation of church and state, the, the separation of the spiritual and the material, that we don't even think twice about it. And we often will look back into the past and kind of layer that perspective on these ancient societies that, uh, you know, like Rome had its people governing it, the senators and and uh, the triumvirates and, and the Caesars, all these folks that kind of did what they did in Rome and and they did their whole civil thing. They ran this, the country, they prosecuted wars. And, and then there was like a spiritual side where off to the side, they might make a sacrifice on the altar of their God and pray to their God before they go into battle. But like they were, we, we think of these as two separate things because that's how we live. You know, you and I go out, we do our work, we make our money, we get our paycheck. Oh, we, you know, a little bit goes taxes over here. We go out and we vote. We, you know, kvetch with our friends about, you know, this administration and that tax and the school district. And we out and mow our lawns. We go buy cars. Like we do all this material stuff. We do this, you know, civic stuff. We go vote and we, we have our entertainment. We watch our media and our sports and so on. Uh, and, and then we've got this spiritual side to us, some of us, and, and, and it's, assume, it's assumed in our society, that, like that's your private stuff. You don't, you don't mix that into your civil work. You don't, you know, the, the person running the town court isn't supposed to, to bring a religion, even if they are religious, they're supposed to leave that at home. They're supposed to execute the work of the state, quote unquote, not, not the state of um, North Carolina, let's say, or New York, but, but, but the state, meaning the government, that's supposed to be secular. We've got this secular and sacred divide. And so you got sacred stuff in your life. That's your private stuff. That's between you and God. That's between you and your wife. And keep that to yourself. You want to read your Bible, that's fine. But don't, you know, and technically you're allowed to read it in public, but yet you really shouldn't. You're just going to cause trouble. You ought to leave your Bible at home. If you're having a prayer meeting, you shouldn't be praying out in the middle of the, you know, like, that's private. Uh, you want to go to church on a Sunday, go to church on a Sunday. It's getting to the point now where you're seeing violence happen uh, against churches, synagogues, and so on. Well, why is that? Well, there's a there's a growing hostility against the spiritual and the sacred. It's not just a matter of, uh, well, we've got these issues in our society. We do have issues, but there's a growing violence against the sacred. This idea that like, I'm so offended that you even exist. It's not just that it should be separate, but like, I don't even want anything spiritual in this country. And so you see this this kind of growing violence against those types, um, you know, of public displays of worship, you know, a house of worship and so on. But in our society and our kind of conception, we the lens that we look through, we think of those two things as divided. What's very interesting about the Romans, and they aren't the only ones, but at this time and place that we're talking about, you know, we're coming into, uh, you know, 100 AD, 200 AD, 300 AD. So after, after Christ here, we're starting... In leading up to this, I mean, this is before this, but Rome is interesting. It's very compact. It's very compressed. What I mean by that is there's no kind of separation between the sacred and the secular. There's no separation. These things like Rome's founding, its founding myths, the way it sees itself, 
very tied into its gods, very tied into it. Everything they do, the civic work that they do of, of, of running the, the state, uh, prosecuting wars, decisions that are made, it's very compressed and intermixed with the pantheon of the gods. Like they don't, they, they, they don't make a distinction between the two things. These things are intermixed, interwoven. They are part of the same fabric. It's not like, well, I wear a shirt and then over that I put a vestment, a jacket uh, or a scarf. No, the shirt itself, the very threads of the shirt are a mix of the sacred and secular. There's no difference. They're integrated and intermingled. So it's this very compressed society when it comes to its its understanding of religion. Religion is very much a part, not meaning, yeah, you know, like they stop every day and have a little prayer meeting. Everything they do is tied to the gods and the gods are tied to everything they do. This is, there's no separation between the two. And so what you get uh, when Christianity comes is this really difficult challenge because for a Roman, the gods are so much a part of who they are that to not be faithful to the gods is to not be a Roman. It's, it's, to, it's to undermine your own city, your own people, your own nation, everything about you. If you, if you are a representation uh, of the cosmological and anthropological truth of, of, of your world, then this idea that there is some other God that, that you should be faithful to cr- creates a problem. And there's, there's a thing about the Christians, and we'll touch on this in just a minute, that, that make it even more challenging. So the way that the Romans measured the success of representation, if you look at the cosmological societies, they kind of measured the success of their representation by their ability to conquer and to spread and to bring others into subjugation to the reality of, of their society, their authority, their power. Uh, for the, say the Greeks, it was really around the perfect society. Do you have, is, do you have a society of perfect men, which they struggled? They said, Hey, look, it's hard. We, you know, the ideal man is the philosopher. You'd be lucky to find a hundred philosophers that qualify in, in a given city. That's not enough to represent. Uh, so they struggled. It was a theoretical idea for them, but they struggled with that. For the Romans, they measured their success of representation through the, um, fidelity of the emperor to the gods. The emperor was kind of the, the, the manifestation of, of everything. So, so the emperor led uh, sacrifice and worship of the gods to the degree that the emperor or the leader of their society was faithful to God was to the degree that this society, the Roman society, was a, represent, a successful representation. It wasn't necessarily about bringing everybody into subjugation, although the Romans were fantastic at that. It wasn't about having the perfect person like the Greeks were after. It really was about this idea of, of the Roman emperor being faithful. And so the emperor had this role in the society, like there were, you know, the, the government would pay for sacrifices, the government would provide uh, all kinds of activities and worship and sacred um, things that would happen, pay for priests and temples and so on. To, so, so, so a good emperor was one who invested heavily into these things for the society. And that, that was a manifestation, that was a representat- representation 
um, of of the truth of their of their world, and so that was a successful emperor. And if one was, if an emperor was not faithful to those things, if he fell short, if he if he if he cared about other things, if he was kind of cheap with the money, he was dishonoring the gods. He was not successful. He was he was a failure, and he could be overthrown. And these things happened. Um, these things happened. So back in 380 A.D., Theodosius. Um, decreed that Christianity became the creed of the empire. He did not make any other kind of worship illegal. He didn't kick out the other gods, the, the Greek god, sorry, the Roman gods. Uh, he didn't say you couldn't worship. And in 380, he said, hey, uh, we're going to make Christianity the, the official creed of the Roman empire. Now, there was a lot of folks uh, that were unhappy about that. And to be fair, allegiance and piety towards um the Roman gods had been waning. So there'd been a complaint in the Roman society that, hey, you know, people really aren't being faithful to the gods like they were in the old days. We need to revive that. There was kind of a waning and a cooling off. And um, and around that time, Theodosius said, hey, we're going to make Orthodox Christianity the creed of the empire. Uh, this made people unhappy. There were there was wrestling for that decade. Um you know, there was a famine. And then, of course, the, 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 the Romans, the, the pagan Romans will say, although they would call the Christians pagans, but that's a whole nother thing. The pagan Romans would say, see, this is a sign the gods are angry with where, the, where we're going in our government and our society. We need to go back to the old gods. Uh, then you had like, um, oh, what was it? Saint, it wasn't Saint Anthony, uh, Saint Athenaeus. Uh, I can't remember his name, but any one of the saints made an argument. No, you need to be more faithful to God. And uh, so there was some of this back and forth. It wasn't St. Anthony. It was Ath- Athanasius, Athanasius. Uh, I can't remember. So, so then in 382, Grantius abolished uh, the title of Pontifex Maximus. Now, Pontifex Maximus meant the, the, the emperor was the main pontiff for the country, meaning he was the one that offered sacrifices. This is this idea of the emperor being faithful to the gods. He got rid of that. This was kind of running against Christianity. Um, And then in 396, Theodosius removed uh, the last protections that they had for priests and other um, pagan, you know, officials in Rome. So you see this kind of process over a 10, 15, 20 year period of, of things changing in Rome. And uh, this idea of um, Christianity taking more and more hold. Now we have this idea of no separation in the Greek culture. So the problem becomes if, if faith and religion is so intertwined with everyday life, there's no separation between the gods and civil life. And we're starting to get rid of the old gods. Well, you know, the Romans in turn go, well, yeah, I mean, we're just going to go to church now. There's this kind of struggle to figure out like, okay, um, first of all, what transcendent truth are we going to embrace? Is Christianity the direction we're going to go? This creates a bit of a crisis and there's a fight. Obviously, some people are trying to push for Christianity, but others, there are other oriental cults that are vying for this. Um, some folks are saying we ought to just look at the philosophies of the Greeks and embrace that, or and others, you know, continue to push for Christianity. But there's this crisis. Christianity gains more and more traction. Uh, but there's a problem because how, if you're if you're measuring your society by the emperor's faithfulness to 
the gods. And now you're saying, no, no, uh, there's just one God, really. Then what does that look like? Well, well, here, there's an interesting wrinkle here because there was a growing kind of argument coming out of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish um, faith saying, hey, you don't have to get rid of all your gods. Our God is the God of gods, the King of kings, Yahweh. And so essentially what you can do is he's the one over all the other ones. And so if you worship Yahweh, then you're good with the king of kings, but then that doesn't eliminate the other kings. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords, the God of gods, in essence. And this was a way that Jewish thinkers are trying to make room for Judaism. So they were saying, hey, uh, and don't forget, we're talking about the same God here. I mean, it's still it, it, Christ comes out of uh the whole Jewish faith. So it's like, hey, orient your 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 empire around the king of kings. People on their own level, on the street level, they can worship whatever gods they want. As long as the state is kind of organized and faithful to the king of kings, then there's no problem. And as long as the people recognize Yahweh as the king of all kings, they as long as they're paying uh, they're due to Yahweh, then they can also, you know, have their f- household gods and their family idols and so on. There's room. There's room for everything. Of course, this is not an orthodox um, way of thinking of uh, Judaism. But this is this kind of political, theological argument. Uh, how do we solve this problem? And so as Rome starts to, to embrace that idea, the problem you get with Christianity is, well, hold on a second. Christianity says, no, there is one God. There's only one way to salvation. Again, it becomes about salvation. It's not about how do you orient your society. How does man find salvation? How does he become friends with God? How does he connect with God? It's through Christ. And the problem for these people with Christianity, which they embraced, but the problem that that embracement caused was the Christian God is a triune God. It's three in one. And this triune God is, is something that's not seen anywhere in the natural world. There's no kind of analog to the Christian God in the human world. So how do you then represent this God in your emperor? You see, you had emperors in the past that would become, I'm God, you know, so this emperor is a God, the God king, the God emperor. You know, and then uh, so he became this kind of representation of, of, of God on earth. But, but when you get to this idea of a triune God, what do you do? This one, this God that is one but three, three but one, what does that look like? And they even tried at one point, I forget where, but there was, um, I think the army, there was, there was somebody, I don't know if it was the emperor, I think it was an emperor. The army insisted that he put his two brothers or maybe his brother-in-law or something, but two other family members in a triumphant with him so that it could represent the triune God. Like they insisted on this because of this idea of the triune God. Uh, and, and the story goes that this, um, that the, the two other gods lost their noses. Uh, you know, the, the emperor ended up dispatching, um, or at least disfiguring, uh, the other two of the of the Trinity uh, that was being represented. So, so they struggle with this idea of, of the triune God. So what you start to see is this de-divination of Roman society, that Christianity de-divinizes. Now, we think of Christianity as spiritual and divinity, 
salvation. But when you've got a society that is as, as kind of compressed and compact as the Roman society, where everything, the civic life, the, the worship of, of, the, of the, you know, the pantheon, pantheistic gods, all this is integrated. There's no difference between the two. And then you kind of bump up against the wall of, of the triune God, and there's no way to really represent. And this happens over hundreds of years, obviously. This didn't happen in, in a few weeks. But you start to see the Roman society de-divinized. This, this compactness undoes. And you start to see a separation. The way that they could solve this triune God problem is a separation you know, you hear St. Augustine in his, uh, the city of God, you've got these two cities that he compares and it's a bit of an allegory and an analogy, but at the same time, it's a working out of what does this look like? So you have terrestrial power, civil power, and you have spiritual power. And what you end up seeing is that the church, the Orthodox church, the Holy Roman Catholic empire church has a pope, has a pontifex, has a king who is over the spiritual realm. And then you have an emperor, a king, a monarch that is over the terrestrial, the civil realm. And that these two work together, but you, you take out from the emperor all the spiritual, all the divine. You, you pull all of the stuff out of society. Remember, they, they eliminated the title of uh, Pontifus Maximus. The emperor was no longer responsible for paying for all the sacrifices, all the temples, paying, making sure that the salaries of the priests and all the hangers-on of, of the cultic worship were, were, uh, were supported. It was all taken out. Uh, Christianity has become the religion of the society. Christianity teaches that salvation comes through Christ. Each individual has to have a relationship with Christ. Of course, there's corporate worship through the church, etc. But but this idea that your civic duty, your civic life is is totally tied up with the with the pagan pantheistic multiple gods of of the Roman world. That's just undone. It's done away with. And what you're left with is a civil society, a terrestrial society, an earthly society, and a spiritual society with two different leaders, two different entities representing the truths of each of those, and then individuals having to become part of both of these kingdoms, these earthly kingdoms and these heavenly, this heavenly kingdom. Now, historically, all through the Middle Ages, you see, see this, this new reality becomes the new reality through the Middle Ages through Europe, the Holy Roman, Holy Roman Empire. And you see it in the East as well, Eastern Orthodoxy. This isn't solely Western Europe, but you see the, this Holy Roman Empire and you see the monarchs of England, France, uh, Prussia, and so on. And, and they're, of course, jockeying for power because the... The Pope is trying to control them. They're trying to break free of his power. But you have the spiritual power and this terrestrial power. And, and, and a king has, has terrestrial power. Now, he's supposed to represent and, and respect and uphold uh, the, the rules and edicts and laws of 
the Pope, because spiritual, the king doesn't want to be excommunicated. The king doesn't want to be made illegitimate spiritually. And he's understanding that he is God's uh, regent, God's king on earth, but he's been given the power over the earthly domain uh, of God's, of God's cosmos. And so you get this uh, kind of final devolution and, and de-divination of Western society in the Roman, the ancient Roman empire, where the emperor has terrestrial power and the Pope has spiritual power and no longer is society compact, compressed, including both the spiritual, the civic, the terrestrial, they're not all intermingled, they're separated. And that's where that starts for mankind. Uh, and, and what that leads to is a crisis down the road that we are in the midst of now, which is if you have de-divinized society, then how can man find salvation? It's not like societies are saying, well, if we're de-divinized, what's our meaning? What's our purpose? What truth are we representing? And how can man be saved? And, it, you know, in the modern world, it'd be one thing to say, well, we still embrace Christianity, but, but with the Enlightenment, Christianity goes kind of out the window, to be quite frank. And so what you're left with, going back to the discussion about Marx and Nietzsche and these others is uh, we're trying to find a way back to salvation. How does mind, how does man become saved? That we, we are soteriological societies now. America is a soteriological society. Europe is comprised of a bunch of soteriological societies. The difference is rather than say Christ is the pathway to salvation, we're saying, no, science is the pathway to salvation. No, my identity, my sexual identity is the pathway to, to salvation. No, no, we have to have reparations. We have to have, um, we have to eliminate uh, these structural racist kind of problems, these sicknesses in our society so that everything's equitable and fair and equal. That's our pathway to society. We are on this continual project of trying to create a heaven on earth. We're trying to make things perfect. We're trying to represent what we believe is true, but not through Christ, not through the church, but through science and identity politics and politics themselves and so on and so forth. Race, we'll get into all that. And, and this is where you get into this Gnostic project of progressivism, which we're going to start getting into. Next episode, we're going to talk a little bit of Joachim of Fiora, Flora, Fiora. It's it's Joachim of of uh, Fiori, I think, or Flora. It's said either way. Um, it's similar names for the same place. We're going to talk about Joachim, a great heretic, and he brings up some really wild stuff that ends up influencing how we think today in this Gnostic movement of progressivism. So I, I think you know today's episode, a little bit of marching through the trenches, probably not. Um, probably not as dynamic and energetic as I would like it to be, but at the same time, important to lay some of this groundwork. So if you've stuck around this long, thank you so much. I hope you found this interesting. Uh, would love to converse. If you want to get in touch with me, you can just email me, mike at mikegaston.com. As I said before, if you're using a podcast 2.0 app, you can throw a little bit of a donation my way. It would be greatly appreciated. 
uh, I'm not shilling for change, but you know what? Hey, I'm I'm not uh, I'm not uh, getting paid big bucks to do this. So if you want to support, if you feel like this is valuable to me, to you rather, uh, throw a little value my way. I appreciate it. If you want to get show notes, transcripts, all that kind of stuff, just go to Mike Gast. Or sorry, go to thecurrency.show forward slash episode one three zero. That's the currency dot show forward slash episode 130. Guys, love each and every one of you. Hope you have a great week and we'll catch you in the next episode. Cheers.